Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There are flaws in the justice system that lead to thousands of people being wrongfully convicted of crimes they didn't commit every year. False confessions, false statements by witnesses, evidence used incorrectly. All of these things and more contribute to the constant issue of miscarriages of justice in our society. We've teamed up to bring these cases to light to make it more widely known just how frequently this is happening in communities around us and how incredibly hard it is to fix this issue within the system. The cases we will be sharing are haunting reminders that justice is indeed blind, even when faced with the truth. Hi, I'm Elise from the podcast True Crime Cat Lawyer. Every other Thursday, my cat Winston and I tell stories of unsolved murders, serial killers, missing persons, and so much more from our neck of the woods, the Pacific Northwest. As someone whose brother was incarcerated for nearly eight years, I have a special place in my heart for incarcerated individuals, particularly those who were convicted as juveniles and those who were wrongfully convicted. And this is Jess from the podcast, What Happens in the Woods. We've been fascinated with the Pacific Northwest and the never-ending supply of true crime cases since relocating here in 2018. We release on the first and third Fridays during our regular seasons and every Wednesday for our WTF series. When Elise asked Bryce and I to collaborate with her on cases of wrongful convictions, there was no way we were going to pass on the opportunity to shed light on this topic. Together, we've created a limited series that will highlight a variety of cases that you may or may not have already heard of. Our hope is to bring them to the forefront of the true crime community and to possibly help get more information out there on these cases. You're listening to a collaboration of the podcast True Crime Cat Lawyer and What Happens in the Woods on Wrongful Convictions. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited to have you with us this day today for this episode. And with us, I'm not even going to, I'm just going to cut to the chase. With us is Elise and Winston from True Crime Cat Lawyer. Thank you for, for collabing with us today. We are so excited to have you. Yes, super excited as well. Yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about your, your background. I, I mean, of course you are coming from a perspective of a lawyer, which I, I'm sure there's a lot more detail and a lot more things that you find from the information that's out there than what I, even I find and, and see and think is interesting. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about your podcast and, and where we can find you. 
Yeah. So I am a lawyer. Um, I don't practice criminal law, but um, I release episodes every other Thursday. And sometimes Winston, my cat, joins me. <laughs> she's she's a feisty, sassy butt. And so sometimes <laughs> she has a mind of her own and doesn't want to help. But <laughs> we, uh, we cover different cases from the Pacific Northwest. We um, cover serial killers, missing persons, unsolved cases. And at least for us, we define the Pacific Northwest as uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and British Columbia. I know that yeah. some people define it a little bit differently, but that's where we focus our cases. You can find us on pretty much every major platform. And we're also on social media. You can search for True Crime Cat Lawyer on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. And we're True Crime Cat Law on Twitter. Awesome. So everybody, please go support Elise and Winston. She covers some really great cases. And and we've had some crossover of like cases that we've covered. So I think it's really cool to listen to when she covers them and get, you know, her perspective on it too. I always love listening to other people. If I have covered something and just to see what their thoughts are. I don't know if you're the same, but I I just everybody's got different opinions and I may not have thought of something or I may not have brought it up or, you know, really expanded on it. Yeah, it's super interesting to hear other people's perspective. Um, you know, there's some podcasts that are more interview style, so right. they speak to different, you know, family members or detectives or things like that. So it's interesting to kind of see what information they were able to find versus, you know, what's kind of out there. And right. I think it's useful sometimes, too, to kind of... Um, figure out what information might be false right out in kind of the public opinion. Um, and that's always interesting for me to see. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that I think is a hard thing that people don't realize is we are, we're not infallible. And even, you know, you can read, I've read reports from, um, you know, like, conviction reports or sentencing reports of like the, you know, the court documents and even some of that information doesn't always match. And it, it really gets you kind of confused with, you're like, well, this is a legal document where, where am I going to get my information if this isn't true? You know? So it's, it is hard. It's hard to know the news doesn't get it right. That's for sure. The news does not get it right. I'd say probably 30% of the time there's false information in those um, news reports and yeah, it's, it, it gets tough, but I I think it's, this is the cool part about this, you know, type of community is that we, we all kind of um, can build off of each other. And yeah, when somebody gets to talk to a family member or, you know, first person account of the investigators or, you know, the coroner, whoever, I, I always appreciate that, that information because I'll take that at face value. Right. Yeah. And I think to your point about the news sources, I've come across a lot of articles that they just haven't republished like the correction. Right. When information has changed, they like don't bother to update their article to add that information, which I think really does a disservice yeah. to the case and the families and the victims. Yeah. Because you're essentially kind of perpetuating false information. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I see that a lot too. You're right. You're absolutely right with that. 
Yeah, I just and I think yeah, you're right. It's a it's a falsehood, and it yeah, it really does disservice to the family or the or, you know the the defendant um, that you don't print or even report on that um, update. You know, it was like a flash in the pan. You can tell definitely tell that it's just for the views or for the for the read. You know, yeah. and it's it's it is sickening, and and I feel here that we do that. Jess is very good at keeping up with that. I mean, I I, I like try. That. Yeah, it's that, hard. We'll we'll give updates on, you know, our past cases too because, you know, it, it we're very interested in those, you know, and we're very vested in them. So I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if if we've covered a case, it's because something about it spoke to us, or or there was information that we felt should have gotten out, or yeah, it's it's hard though. It's hard to, and then there are new cases every day, and it's just a sad, sad thing to know that it doesn't stop. All right. Well, are we ready to get into this case? Yes. You ready? I'm ready. You know nothing about this, but <laughs> Elise and I have been, you know, probably bombarded with a lot of information on this one. This one is is a big deal and it's it's heartbreaking just all the way around. Everybody involved. It's very distressing to know that this not only happens, but it happens more frequently than anybody wants to know or admit that people are wrongfully convicted and they are, you know, it's not like somebody just walks in the jail one day and says, well, you're free to go. Here you go. Go on. It takes so much time and so much effort. And it it only works when the legal system works. And I think we'll get into it, but I think there's a lot of things in this case where the legal system failed repeatedly. Just, could not get it together for these kids, for these guys. So, but that's my opinion. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into that later. <laughs> I'll try not to give too much opinion in this one. All right. So we are going to cover the case of victim um, 14-year-old Catrice Matthews in Dixmore, Illinois. Catrice seemed like a normal young teenage girl in the 1990s and I myself was a young teenage girl in the 90s, so I feel like she and I would have been friends. She was an eighth grader in junior high at that point. Um, she was into fashion. She was involved in the choir at school. She loved to sing, and she just loved hanging out with her friends. At the time, Katrisa was living with her mother in Harvey, a town nearby Dixmore. Kind of like, this is all a suburb of Chicago, so it just it's kind of probably like parishes or something that are really close together. Her father was living in Florida and he was trying to make, you know, a better life for himself. And they had talked about her moving down there with him. They were making plans so that, you know, she had better opportunities as a young adult. Her normal routine every day, you know, during school was to go to her grandmother's after school. She was going to call her mother when she got there, check in. She'd probably eat and then she would get on the bus um, to get to her home that was not far away. On the day in question, she walked her friend home, which was normal. Then she made it to her grandmother's and she talked to her mom before she left over the phone, but she never made it on that bus. She never made it home. She would last be seen alive, leaving her grandmother's home late that afternoon. Katrisa was reported missing and it seems that the report was taken seriously, which we know is not always the case. A lot of times with teenagers, they, the police will say, oh, they're, they've run away. And it's easily dismissed, and it there's valuable time that gets missed when that happens. You have a window of opportunity, you know, in those first, 
you know, few hours, uh, first 24 to 48 hours where you miss that if you don't talk to the right people and you don't get the right information. And I, I am at least happy that it seemed like in this case, they did take the, the missing report very seriously. The police were involved in searches that were organized around the neighborhood and the public was asked to be on the lookout. They were handing out flyers, you know, family was searching for her, friends were searching for her. Initially, though, there was no sign of any anything. We're not sure, you know, where she went, who she went with. There's just no sign of anything. Three days after she went missing, there was a very strange call that came in to the Dixmoor police. It was a short call made by an anonymous person that claimed they had seen a body in an area that was close to Catrice's grandmother's house. And as soon as this information was relayed, the man hung up. If police had followed up on this call and tip, uh, there's no record of it. But, you know, there's not to say that they didn't, but obviously... This information didn't lead to anywhere or anything that was relevant at the time. Then evidently, there was more information that came in to the police by multiple sources who say they saw Catrice with a white male at a Motel 6, as well as a restaurant on um, November 22nd. So this is just days after her appearance. And although several employees of the motel came forward, nothing much comes from this information either. Police find no evidence that the girl was Catrice, nor do they know who this white male was. And it just kind of gets lost. The information just kind of gets lost and shuffled after that. Unfortunately, the body of 14-year-old Catrice Matthews was found on December 8th, 1991. A man was walking along a path, you know, near an, an empty field near Interstate 57. He came across her body. There were definite signs of a sexual attack. Her top was pushed up above her bra and she was nude from the waist down, aside from her socks and underwear that were down around one of her ankles. Her jeans were completely off and draped across her chest. The cause of death, which was later confirmed by the coroner, was a single 25 caliber bullet that had been shot into her mouth. Now, the autopsy shows some very interesting information. They did find seminal fluid from vaginal and rectal swabs in the rape kit. They also found some hair samples, but there were no fingerprints found at the scene. And as mentioned, the cause of death was confirmed to be a single shot to the head. Investigators at the scene confirmed she was killed there in that field, most likely after she had been sexually assaulted and she had been left for dead. There was no evidence that the body had been moved, nor that it had been out in the elements for long. Even her socks, which were white, showed minimal dirt, which in turn leads me to what I found most curious out of all of the evidence found was that she had only been dead a matter of maybe hours, maybe one to two days at most, definitely not weeks before her body was found, according to the autopsy report. And keep in mind, at this point, she had been missing about 20 days. Oh, okay. So somebody, either this information is wrong or later information that we'll come across is wrong, but it's very conflicting and it's an interesting thing to, you know, the coroner reported that her body was still in rigor mortis, which as I read, last upwards of, of about 48 hours. So if she was still in rigor mortis, she would have 
either had to have the body been preserved and kept cold yeah. or she was not dead those 20 something you know 20 days 19 days or she survived and was just left there you know, I can't like, imagine yeah. that being shot and bleeding oh, out like not. that. She yeah. was shot in the mouth yeah. and they did. I mean, she, she bled heavily. I can't right. imagine that she would have lasted that many days out there like that. Plus they did not find any, um, like she was not disturbed by any animals and this is an open field. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, that to me is probably the most telling that, confirms that you know 24 to 48 hours of, of rigor mortis and where she was i i would think animals would be present you would find you know a, you would find that there was presence of you know animals unfortunately yeah they do come across bodies and you know they do things it's it's just the nature of animals yeah so where then was she for the past three weeks? I mean, that's kind of the question, the million dollar question. Did she run away? Did she get taken? To find these answers, police began working to find, you know, any possible suspects. They started by questioning the people in her life, which, of course, they're going to do. Friends and family, classmates. They very quickly got nowhere. By the early part of 1992, there are no leads there was no progress being made on catching Catrice's killer. Months go by with the Illinois State Police taking the lead on the investigation, and it turns cold. They had DNA from the semen collected, but you know this is before a national database, so CODIS had not been invented yet. Yeah. So there's no centralized database to to match it with. At this time, DNA evidence did not give many answers to labs if they didn't have a source to check the DNA against. You have to have the primary source to be able to say this is a match. Yeah. They could get information from it. You know, they could they could extract a lot of information about, you know, what type of perpetrator they're looking for, who who they should be looking for. Is it is he a white male, a black male? Is he, you know, um just very does he have basic. a certain blood type, yeah. you know, that type of things. They're not gonna be able to pull a match out of their butt without having something to match it to. Yeah. So it really essentially is, it's great to have, but at the time it meant nothing. It really didn't mean anything. It doesn't give any answers. So this investigation just comes to a standstill, but outwardly the Dixmore police claim to the public, they're working hard to get information on the case. They're working hard to solve this case. They're telling her family that they're doing everything that they can do. And it's just not, nothing is happening. Yeah. And then seemingly out of nowhere, they get this break. In late October of 1992, a report was made to an investigator at the Dixmore police that someone had seen Catrice waiting on a street corner the day she went missing. They saw her eventually get in a car with some teenage boys. So this source was a 15-year-old named Kino Barnes. He was a classmate of Catrice's, as were the supposed boys in the car. Apparently, Kino was told by another boy, Jonathan Barr, who was also 15, that he had seen Catrice get into a car with occupants Robert Lee Veal, Robert Taylor, and possibly other boys. So Kino Barnes supposedly gave this information in a short statement of about one paragraph to this investigator. My question is, why was he with the police? 
and giving a statement about what another boy had told him. And how did it come to be that it was only now coming out? It's not really stated anywhere. It's, it's a little troubling to me. I, it, I don't feel that that's viable information. And also you'll see why they spent about a week with that information before anything was done. After the statement is made by the 15-year-old male, so Kino, police bring in their first suspect, Robert Lee Veal. He also is 15 at this time. Oh. Veal was taken to the state's attorney's office on October 29th, 1992 for questioning. He is not given access to an attorney. There was no guardian, parent, or adult who represented him during his five hours with investigators. Something to note about Robert was he was considered a person with a learning disability and mentally challenged. That is extra troubling when you have a 15-year-old who is alone with people who do not care whether he is taking care of or not and for his safety or for his, you know, his well-being in general. And I'm sure that they did not take that into consideration when talking to him. I don't think that was much of a forefront, you know, on in the nineties anyway. Yeah. No. And I, I cannot speak if this, you know, is still accurate as of today, what his, his, um, if he is disabled still, if he is not considered that way, I, I don't know. And it, it doesn't matter uh, essentially because at the time it, it was stated in every, you know, bit of information that I could find about him, it was clearly stated. And that's what matters. His, his, you know, capacity today, or how he is able to live doesn't matter. At the time, he was deserving of at least having a parent and an attorney present, regardless of his mental disability yeah. or learning disability. Doesn't matter. Um, it it is atrocious that that is what happened to him. Yeah, whether I think, oh sorry, no, I was just going to say whether he was guilty or not. Right, and I think there's at least in my mind, it seems like you would want not giving him like special treatment, but it's like, he's already a teenager. So he's a minor. So that's the first, you know, issue where he should have an attorney or a guardian or someone. But then also, you know, like you said, he has a learning disability. He's mentally disabled. I think I read that he has an, he had an IQ at the time of 56. Yes. Very low. Um, And so just, even that, you know, should be, um, you know, cause for kind of making sure that you're really dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Because I think if we took those same facts and had them today mm-hmm. and you didn't have any, you know, parent present, you didn't have any attorney present, you didn't read him his rights, which I think I read somewhere, that's anything he says to you is going to get thrown out because you didn't do the basic checklist for him. As it should be. And I mean, as it should be. And the fact that the fact that this is how they proceeded with questioning him is already sets the tone to me. I, I, it's hard not to be biased in, in that because like I said, whether he's guilty or not, you are already proceeding in a manner that does not put you in the best of light as an investigator, as a state's attorney, you are already throwing out what should happen and just throwing it out the window. 
it, it, you, you've yeah. no regard for this child whatsoever. And it's, yeah. And it doesn't get better. That's, that's the thing. So after several hours of being questioned, Robert Veal signed a written statement claiming he and four other teenage boys, Jonathan Barr, Robert Taylor, Shane Sharp, and James Harden, all of whom are African-American males, all of whom are not adults. He says in this statement that they were responsible for the sexual assault and murder of Katrisa Matthews on November 19th, 1991. This statement was handwritten by the investigator and witnessed by the state's attorney, Robert um, Mulan. So when we come back from this break, I will tell you what Robert Lee Veal's statement claimed and how the rest of this plays out. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In his signed statement, the information states that on the afternoon of November 19th, Robert Lee Veal was walking and a car stopped to offer him a ride. That car was driven by James Harden, age 17 at the time, and inside the car were Robert Taylor and Shane Sharp. He gets in, and they go down the road where they pick up Jonathan Barr, the driver's brother, so James' brother, and Katrisa. The group then goes to a field near I-57 to hang out for whatever reason, um, but an altercation between Katrisa and Jonathan starts kind of out of nowhere, and he just punches her. Oh. Yeah. In his statement, he claims that the group starts walking along a path. James is calming Katrisa down. They then get to a point where they kind of stop in this field, and just kind of out of nowhere, soon Katrisa is being forced to engage in sex with James, Jonathan, Robert Taylor, and Shane. But Robert Veal claims he did not engage in sexual assault. He, he was kind of a, a bystander. He then claims James pulled out a gun and shot Katrisa in the mouth. And then the four or the five boys just kind of left. They left her there to die. He gives no reason. And this statement, I should say, this statement whether it's from him or whether the investigators led him to it, there's no reason for why any of this occurred that's given. Really? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you would, I mean, you would think that there would be somebody wanted to date her and it got out of hand or she was, you know, they used to say oh, all the time in the nineties. Oh, well, she was a flirt. She was a flirt and she was asking for it. Yeah. Even something like that, nothing like that was stated. And and mind you, that is not a reason for sexual assault. And I do not condone that whatsoever. 
But I'm just saying in the 90s, they would say that a lot. Oh, you asked for it. You're dressing a certain way. Yes, they would. You're, yeah. It was very much a, a shaming, you know, period. So authorities next brought in Robert Taylor to be questioned in regards to Catrice Matthews that same day. So Robert was also only 15 years old at the time of the questioning. And he also was questioned without an attorney or without a parent or a guardian. After several hours, he also would sign a handwritten statement written by the investigator in which he stated that he and the other four boys were responsible for the sexual assault and murder on, again, November 19th, 1991. His statement also states that the boys stopped to pick up Katrisa in the car that James was driving. And the details are similar enough that, you know, Robert Veal gave in his confession. However, when he gets to the end, he also claims that it was the other boys and he did not participate in the sexual assault. The next confession came days later after 20 hours of interrogation. Shane Sharp who was age 17, also signed a similar statement implicating himself and the same four young men in the crime. Just as with the other two boys, he had no attorney and no parent present during the time being questioned. Almost two days, he is there being questioned with no attorney, no representation, no parent, nothing. Yeah, you know what that sounds like is like, in the Air Force, you go through survival school and they, they keep you up for hours because you would yeah. just agree to anything because you're so tired. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's torture. It is. <laughs> it is. It's, it's mental torture. Yeah. Is what it is. And and I can't say, I mean, I don't know. I didn't find any information on that. Were they being fed? Were they, you know, I'm assuming he didn't sleep. Yeah. I'm assuming that they kept him awake. Um, you know, they probably rotated investigators coming and going and would drill in the same questions and, and the same information. I'm sure 20, almost 21 hours of this, you're going to say whatever they want you to say. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. You don't even know your own name at that point. If no. you haven't slept, you haven't been given you know enough food. You, you don't know. You don't know anything. The handwritten statement was again prepared by the same investigator and witnessed by the same state's attorney as Veal and Taylor when their statements were signed. But his statement varies in some details. So in his confession, he claims that it wasn't James driving, but Robert Taylor, who at this time was only 14 years old in November of 1991. I found that odd. Not that it doesn't happen. 14-year-olds do some crazy shit. I'm yeah, they do. Yeah. But it's it's an it's enough of a statement that I would have my eyes would have been open to that and said, What? This kid who's fourteen was driving? Whose yeah. car was he driving? Yeah. Did is this a regular thing that he would do? You know, I would have asked more questions. It would have it would have concerned me. So he also states that the sixteens went to the brothers' home. So James and Jonathan, their home, and they were hanging out in their basement before the group went to the field. This time it's James who punched Katrisa in the mouth, not Jonathan. And so the story keeps changing. Right. Oh. And then Shane finishes his statement by claiming that neither he nor Jonathan participated in the sexual assault. 
when James Harden and Jonathan Barr, who was supposedly the one who confessed to Keno Barnes, you know, which kicked off this whole entire string of interrogations, they were brought in to be questioned. Neither of them would give a statement or sign papers that implicated any of the boys in this crime. They were the two that alone maintained they had no knowledge of this and they were innocent from the get-go. And mind you, Jonathan is the one who, you know, supposedly told Kino, which Kino then relayed to the investigator that, you know, the whole thing that they had Catrice had gotten in the car with them and that they knew, you know, they were involved in her murder. So now all of a sudden he knows nothing about it and he and his brother are, are maintaining that they, they have no knowledge of this whatsoever. But he was supposedly the one who, who had this, you know, this confession that was made. So at this point, authorities have three signed confessions. And, you know, that should be good enough, right? We, we assume that even a child wouldn't confess to a crime they didn't commit. But I question all of these inconsistencies. All of these confessions have in common is that they kept the names of the people involved and the date that it happened as supposedly consistent. But let's talk about that date that was given in the coroner's report and compare it to the date that was given in the signed confessions. All three of the boys signed statements claiming that the assault and murder happened on the day that Katrisa disappeared, November 19th. However, as I stated, the autopsy showed that she had more than likely been killed on the 7th and 8th or 8th of December. That's like three weeks after she disappeared. Yeah. So that alone in that inconsistency and the others in the statement, you would think that there would be a long pause taken to make sure that these young men were actually responsible for this crime. You would be wrong. So the three confessions are enough for the police to arrest all five of the teens and charge them with first degree murder and aggravated rape. The news media, you know, dubbed these boys the Dixmore Five. In a news article from 1992, Dixmore Police Chief Nicholas Graves claims that they had these boys pegged for this crime all along. They just needed some more time to get more evidence. Quote, we were suspicious of the five from the beginning, but it took a lot of time to develop the case, end quote. Also stating, quote, we kept talking to a lot of people and finally one of the suspects started to talk and gave us information that the others couldn't refute. I think they knew all along that they were going to be had, end quote. In that Chicago tri- uh, Tribune article, it clearly claims that James Harden was the one who pulled the trigger because the boys were afraid that Katrisa would report the sexual assault. So they've already put that out there in public yeah. eye. How did that they get this, that? Yeah. You know, 17-year-old boy pulled the trigger and they named names in this article. And they've already, you know, put it out there that all of these boys were responsible for the sexual assault, even though in the confessions, whoever confessed that they didn't participate in that, the this news article put it out there that they all had and that James definitely pulled that trigger. And it doesn't say alleged either. I find that very, um, you know, it's just biased information. It doesn't say allegedly pulled the trigger. Yeah. It just says he pulled the trigger. Wow. So, yeah. 
It would be months later that the DNA testing on the seminal fluid was complete. So keep in mind, this is, you know, 1992 at this point. They, it, it, things didn't move rapidly. We've all, we've discussed before, CSI doesn't have, you know, not every crime lab is, is set up with the CSI magic computer and, and technology and things happen within, you know, five hours. Uh, yeah, I've been part of that, the CSI effect. I just think everything is testable and like, oh, we can get him off that. Right, right, exactly. In February of 1993, the Illinois State Police Lab had the results finalized and it was found to be that this DNA, this, you know, semen was from one male source. More than that, it matched none of the five young men who were all in jail awaiting trial at this point. In fact, there was no evidence that linked any of them to the crime, period. The DNA was tested against registered sex offenders at that time. However, there was no match to any person in the registry. It was a very small registry at that point. Like I said, CODIS was not a thing. In 1994, the crime lab officially reported that the DNA in semen was not a match to any of the boys in custody for the crime. It did not stop the trials from beginning. Really? I'm not kidding. They proceeded. Um, they did the state the state did yeah it's it's interesting to me that so they have these alleged confessions and i'll Mm -hmm. put confessions in quotes sure and then they have this dna that doesn't match anyone Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to me that they just sort of ignore this dna I mean, obviously, it's not interesting. It's terrible. Right. But it's interesting in the sense that in the Central Park 5 case, yeah. they decide that there's like this unknown sixth male that's actually the one who raped the victim. And so they just haven't found this person, right. all of that. It's it's weird that they didn't try to argue that. And they just kind of almost like didn't acknowledge that the DNA existed. Yeah. Right. And, and I did read, um, which I'm sure was very painful for the families. If, if this information ever got to them that they couldn't, uh, they spent a lot of time investigating whether Catrice was sexually active at 14 years old. And, and again, I'm not saying that that does not happen. What I'm saying is that they assumed that because the DNA didn't match any of these teens, it was then, well, how do we prove that then she was sexually active? And, you know, this yeah. is, this was from consensual sex with somebody. How do we then prove that? At no point did they think, did they want to, like you said, they just kind of pushed that knowledge aside and, and ignored that there was no physical evidence that these five boys were involved. None. You've got hearsay from a boy who heard it from another boy that they picked her up in the car and took her to a field. That's what you've got. And you've got three confessions that don't match. I mean, details don't match. So which one of those confessions do you acknowledge is the correct one? Well, they just said that all three of them were. It just, it it really blows my mind that they are ignoring the science of the case. I know. Do you guys know if they had public defenders or if they had lawyers? I believe that they had public defenders. I believe all of them did. Okay. Yeah. It at at this point, 
and and we'll get, I I know there's a lot more information, and I don't want to get too deep into the trial information because I'm sure that Elise has a lot of information to go over on that. So I want to I want to save that for her. There are some things that we have to discuss in regards to that um, for later information to make sense. So I'll give you kind of a brief, you know, background on on what happens from this. So surprisingly, the state of Illinois still proceeded with the charges, like we said, solely based on the signed confessions of Robert Beale, Robert Taylor, and Shane Sharp. The state filed for Jonathan Barr and Robert Taylor to actually be tried as adults. And keep in mind, they were both 15 years old at this time, at the time of being charged. The juvenile court judge uh, initially denied it. But the state prosecutor in the case won an appeal that pushed it through. Oh, wow. And at least I'm not sure if you have that to discuss. I do remember some of the details, if if not, because that bothered me greatly. Yeah, you can go ahead and discuss that. Okay. So so the judge, um, he really, it, it was, and I read the appeal, basically, to, to paraphrase for, you know, not being a lawyer, for it to make sense for, for me, I had to kind of really break it down. His, his key point, his key argument was that uh, these, his hang up was the date. They confessed to a date that didn't match the autopsy report. And so he said, there's no reason to send it to the judge or, you know, to the adult um court because they will not be able to get a conviction based on the discrepancies with the date. So we'll just keep it here with me is essentially what happened. There's a lot more that, that goes, he had other points, but the one point where he said, yeah, I'm not going to send it to the judge to be judged in the adult court is because they won't, the state won't be able to get a conviction. And I'm reading this information thinking it doesn't bother you that these are 15 year old boys who were interrogated without an attorney present, without, you know, um, without parents present, that there are so many inconsistencies in all of the information that Jonathan Barr actually never confessed and has maintained that he's innocent, that, you know, there are, yes, like he said, there are inconsistencies with the date, but for you to keep it where you wanted it was because you didn't feel that that court was going to be able to to win a case. The prosecutors would not win the case is essentially what it came down to. Oh, okay. And it, that to me is, I, shame on that judge. <laughs> shame on that judge. Just, it, it, blows my mind i don't know um i don't know if you have more information on that or you know yeah so i don't have um more info just some thoughts yeah at least you know from my perspective if you're saying that there's not enough evidence to get a conviction at the adult level then to me you're kind of implicitly saying that there's reasonable doubt in the case. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're obviously not outright saying that, but if you don't have enough to convict, that essentially is what you're saying, you know? And so 
that should, I mean, that should tell you that there's something wrong right. with this case. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and it, it apparently didn't, but the state prosecutor won an appeal that pushed that through. So they were tried as adults. And at this time, they probably were adults because we're talking, let's see, I, years. I think Taylor, Taylor was 1995, maybe. So, yeah, they, they were adults at this point, but not when they were arrested, arrested and charged. Right. They were not. Um, it, yeah, like I said, that, that is, that should have been a warning flag right there. That, that things were not going how they should have been. And it's it's not only the judge's responsibility, it's each and every one of those lawyers, the de- public defenders and the prosecutors should have at that point. It's, it is your responsibility to make sure that these children get a fair trial, that these young men get a fair trial. Nobody was concerned with that, obviously. No. Nobody was. So Robert Veal and Shane Sharp had the aggravated rape charges dropped and pled guilty to first-degree murder charges after being offered deals to testify against the other three boys. So really what it boiled down to is the prosecutors realized that if they did not, because there was no physical evidence that linked them, the DNA did not link them, and they couldn't dispute that. They were choosing to just sidestep that and act like it wasn't a thing. Um they kind of decided that how do we make this, you know, these confessions, quote unquote confessions, um, more viable. And that is to have the three that can, that gave these statements, you know, testify against the other members. Yeah. And Robert Taylor did not do that. He did not testify. He did not take a plea deal. So, Robert Veal and Shane Sharp did. They, even on the stand, had inconsistency to their stories. Neither one started out the story the same. They, you know, where they went after everyone was in the car was not the same, and they did not give the same information once they got to the field. It, it didn't matter. In exchange for their testimony, they would both receive 20-year sentences, with parole being a possibility after seven years. James Harden was the first to be tried in May of 1995. His father actually even took the stand to give evidence that he was at home with his family the day of Catrice's disappearance. He had paycheck stubs that stated he had only worked like half of a day. And he also had proof that James had a minimum day at school that day. So he was home in the afternoon. And he also claimed that Jonathan was already home because he had been suspended from school that day. That the whole family never left that house. The state did not prove any evidence was tied to James, and all they had was the confusing testimony of Sharp and Beale and their, you know, quote-unquote confessions. It didn't matter. It was enough to convict him, and he was sentenced initially to 120 years in prison, but that, that was later on lessened to 80 years. 80 years. He's, you know, in his, what, early 20s at this point? 80 years. Yeah. Might as well have just said life sentence. Yeah. Be done with it. Why would you pussyfoot around with with these years. Robert Taylor and Jonathan Barr were each tried in 19, um, 1997. When Robert Taylor had signed, you know, he had signed a statement. Prosecutors had no real evidence linking him to the crime. 
um, or Jonathan Barr, and it seems that their lawyers tried to argue the validity of the signed statements made by Taylor Sharp and Veal and the inconsistencies of the date of Catrice's death. But the convictions came just the same. Robert Taylor was sentenced to 80 years, while Jonathan Barr was sentenced to 85 years. Wow. Right. Robert Veal and Shane Sharp were released on parole after serving about eight years each. There was, um, you know, time, time, credit for time served already because they had awaited trial for a couple of years. Yeah. So the three remaining young men who, you know, quickly grew up in the prison system worked hard to fight their convictions with appeal after appeal until all avenues of hope seemed to just close up and dry up. And, and they got nowhere. They were denied repeatedly all over the place for multiple different appeals. It was unreal. Even though people acknowledged that the DNA did not match. Yeah. It, it was crazy. Eventually, lawyers from the Innocence Project, the University of Chicago Law School Exoneration Project, and the Center on Wrongful Convictions, as well as private attorneys, joined in their efforts to get the DNA retested and you know hopefully get the convictions overturned. It took more than 10 years for that request to be approved, only to then be told by the Dixmore police that the sample could not be located. Of course. How convenient. Very convenient. And it, you know, more than likely had been destroyed at this point. They suddenly were able to find this long lost sample after a judge, it was a new judge who was handling the appeal told the police that the defense lawyers were going to be given permission to conduct their own search of the police station to resolve this issue. So put up or shut up basically. Um, And they showed up to do that. They were denied access. The police chief at that time even told them that I think uh, he couldn't find the register, the log of evidence. And they were denied entrance into the police department that day. Then it magically you know, was found a week later and handed over. So the sample was sent off to be tested again. Um, now CODIS is a thing at this point. So they sent it off to be tested against the national registry. Meanwhile, attorneys are working on tracking down Robert Veal and Shane Sharp and Keno Barnes because Keno Barnes had not participated in any of the trials. He was not there to give his testimony. He, it, he was not, he was not a, a witness in any form. All three of the men would end up officially recanting their statements. And in the case of Veal and Sharp, they recanted their confessions, saying that they were coerced. Keno Barnes actually claimed he had never even given a statement in the first place. And all of what the police claimed he had, um, you know, he had said, he, he was like, that's, I don't know anything about this. I have no idea why my name is even being mentioned. And I don't know. There was also mention of another man. He said, I don't even know who that man is. I, I did not give this information to the police. Robert and Shane claimed that they were coerced into signing these statements. Like I said, the police, um, they claimed that the police used threats. They forced them to sign. They also stated, hey, if you sign this, we'll let you go. You know, you want to go home to your grandma, sign this piece of paper. You'll be out of here. You'll go. And the kids thought that that would happen. They thought that if they told the police what they wanted to hear, they'd be, you know, able to go home. They did not. It, It did not happen that way. The signed affidavits that there was no truth to the statements and that they had been told if they signed, you know, that 
they would get an easier sentencing in jail if they, you know, if they testified it against the other boys, they would be, you know, it would go easier for them in jail. They would get special privileges. They would, um, it wouldn't be as hard. What child is not going to take that deal? Yeah. If you're going to send me to jail because nobody's listening to me, of course, I'm going to want to be treated better. I'm going to want these special privileges, whatever they are. I'm going to want to be as safe as possible in prison because I'm a child with, you know, grown adults who have committed horrible crimes. Of course, I'm going to say and do whatever you tell me to do. Of course. Unfortunately, none of these, um, you know, the recanting, the, you know, Barnes coming forward and saying he doesn't know anything about this. None of that was helpful in any of the appeals for um, Jonathan Barr, Robert Taylor, or James Harden. It still did not, give them any hope of appeal. When the DNA results finally come back, there is a match. Whoa, really? Right. So the DNA pointed to a known criminal, Willie Randolph, who had been on parole for an armed robbery charge back in 1991. He was on parole just months before Catrice's murder. And he had a history of sexual assault and other criminal charges going back decades. His address at the time was about a mile away from where Catrice's body had been found in that field. When authorities began to look into his past, a former girlfriend came forward, and I say that in quotes because of my next statement. She gave evidence that she had been forced at the age of 15 into a sexually violent relationship with Randolph for numerous years. She gave birth to his uh, son, during their so-called relationship. And after attempting to break off the relationship, she was beaten with a tire iron by Randolph. Really? Where was her family? Where were her people? Who was protecting her? Nobody. The system failed her too. Yeah. Wow. She gave a statement that the field where Katrisa Matthews body was found was also the place where Randolph had beaten and sexually assaulted her for the first time at the age of 15. This sets a tone for this jerk. This is a pattern. Yeah. Now, is she older? At the time. So this happened years before the okay. what happened to so Catrice. I believe it happened in the 70s. Yeah. So, so this she was is older. just escalation for him. Like, it's, yes. it's yeah, wow. Right. She, um, you know, gave them a lot of information and even with this at hand, this the then state's attorney, it was different um, than who had been involved in their signed statements, did not move to in, indict Randolph for the charge, the charges of rape and murder. It would not be until 2016 that Willie Randolph would be arrested and charged with the kidnapping, sexual assault, and first-degree murder. And mind you, they had DNA evidence in 2011. Really? Yes. So it took them five years to... Yep. Huh. Yeah. Thankfully, Jonathan Barr, Robert Taylor, and James Harden did not have to wait until 2016 to have their convictions vacated. So on November 3rd of 2011, 20 years almost to the date of her disappearance, all charges were dismissed against all five of the men in the murder and sexual assault of Katrisa Matthews. In 2014, the five men filed a civil suit, which uh, result in a $40 million um, payout the largest at that time in the state for a wrongful conviction that had been overturned. Now, is that against 
the the police or the city or I believe they it was a civil suit, so I believe this is against anybody involved. Is that correct? It, so it was specifically against um, six Illinois State Police officers mm-hmm. and three Dixmore police officers. Oh, wow. okay, yeah, they're personally personally named. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah. So. With that information, I mean, that's, it's, it's a lot of background, but I know that you have a lot more information, Elise. But you will have to wait for part two of this episode that will release next Wednesday, where we will continue the discussion with Elise, and she's going to give us all the details from the legal aspect of things. And of course, we'll keep talking about our opinions and how this all kind of plays out. We want to thank Elise again for partnering up with us. This has been a great episode and you guys won't want to miss out on the second part. Thank you so much again. And we are so excited to bring you more cases like this in the upcoming months. Be sure to check out Elise and Winston over on their podcast, True Crime Cat Lawyer, which can be found on all listening platforms. She is also on social media, and we will, of course, supply links to find Elise and the Distinguished Winston, so you can check them out. Let her know that we sent you. Remember, WTFs will be out before you know it in June. But until then, the podcast will be on a little break. Fear not, we are still around. We're just recharging so we can come back better and stronger for our next season. Until then, campers, of course, please be kind to one another. Stay safe. And remember to stay out of the damn woods. Bye, guys.